There you go. I'm audible, I'm useful, good. Maybe audible, yes, useful, no, we'll find out. Um, look, if you haven't been welcomed enough, let me welcome you again. It's lovely to have you all with us this morning. Uh, we just, um, we love Jesus and we love worshipping him with his people. And so uh, what a special day uh, today is. Uh, look, here as a church, we, we usually uh, spend our time together preaching through whole books of the Bible. That's, that's the main thing that we do. And yet uh, at this point of this year, we felt it would be wise and it would be time well spent um, for us to, to pull back from that for a time to relay some of those big themes that are central, big themes from the scriptures that are central to our life here as a church together. Some four big ideas that are clearly drawn from scripture that we're unpacking in this series and then we're going to be diving into uh, more thoroughly um, in the front end of this year. We began with the principle of gospel centrality, which is the idea that the Bible teaches we should make the gospel the functional center, the actual center of our lives and of our ministry. And having established that principle, we see all these other things start to work in a way that they previously couldn't. Uh, we are now widening our view to look at various implications of the gospel in the life of uh, Christians and of the church. Last week, we looked at discipleship, what it means to be a gospel-centered disciple. This week, um, we're looking at community and what it means uh, to be living as a part of a gospel-centered community. Um, now, last week, I did have a few people ask me um, afterwards if I could give a recap of the, the sentence that I gave to kind of describe what gospel-centered discipleship was all about. So I'm going to quickly do that today. Um, this is where we went last week, if we can get that slide happening. Um, this is what we said about gospel-centered discipleship. We said it was life with Jesus, becoming like Jesus by the grace of Jesus until we meet Jesus. And I hope that was helpful for you. If you'd like to hear more about any of those things, um, you can go to our church's website and have a listen to last week's sermon. It's there for, uh, it's there for your convenience. Um, this week, we turn to the idea of community. Now, I, I don't know about you, but in my downtime, one of the things that I like to do, it's probably the main thing that I like to do, if I count it by the number of hours I spend doing it, is I like to listen to podcasts or watch videos on my computer or phone. Um, it's, it's kind of a thing that I do. Uh, and one of the things that the hosts of this content will often do is ask you to subscribe to their, to their channel or to their show or to whatever it is that they're calling it. Am I the only one who's experienced this? No? I'm the only person here who has ever listened to a... No, there's some other people. Okay. Um, have you noticed, though, that when they're asking you to subscribe, they'll often, they'll often use a peculiar kind of language to describe what they're asking you for? They will ask you if you are willing to join their community. Join our community, subscribe to our channel, as if those two things are somehow related. I hear this word community getting thrown around more and more in kind of life in general. It's coming up more often than it used to come up. In fact, it's starting to come up in some surprising places, right? Like it seems like these days, it doesn't matter what you're doing. You could be buying a couch from Harvey Norman and they will take your details and put them in a computer and then you will get an email later that day saying, thank you for joining the Harvey Norman community. Is it, has anyone else... No, just me, once again? No, we've all had that. It's getting weirder. Here's another great example of what I'm talking about. I just went to Google and typed in join our community to see what I would find. Here is an ad for a group of people asking you to join up and sign up so that you can receive free shipping and join the free shipping community, the community of people that exists. Um, uh, and aren't we glad that that community of people exists? Because once I was, was lonely and isolated and alone in this world, but now I belong to a community, a community that gathers around getting free shipping. Isn't that a, a meaningful thing? And we're just going to pray and the band's going to come, right? So 
And like, it, it's getting, it's getting a, a little out of hand, uh, and it makes me think a few things. Firstly, it makes me think um, that advertisers have cottoned onto something, which is that people are craving community. Uh, and secondly, it's making me think that we need a much better definition of what community actually is, because we seem to be, I think the word means something different to what we think it means. Um, community has become a buzzword because people are craving community. I'm not the first person to say this. Much has been said and written about the way in which uh, Western culture in particular has become over-individualized. We are the most individual culture that has ever existed. Uh, and as time progressed, uh, that over-emphasis on the individual has started to cause problems in our society and in our hearts, and a collective longing has made itself known. That's what's going on. People desire community. In a strange twist, it turns out that a city can be a lonely place to live. We are simultaneously the most connected and the most isolated we have ever been. We're more connected. Technology has brought the world closer. We talk about there being a, a global village. We have a phone in our pocket uh, and at all times, and we can get in touch with, with anyone instantly or look at amusing pictures of cats whenever we want to. Uh, but it seems that this technology uh, can only facilitate surface-level relationship. Uh, your Facebook friends aren't your real friends. It's not the same thing, that's what I'm saying. And the persona that people present online is not the real them. You can't get to know someone online. Social media is entirely made up of people presenting a carefully curated version of themselves to the world. Um, the one that they can edit, that they can correct, only showing what we want to show, what we find flattering. It is, by definition, a mask to wear. And it is a terrible substitute for genuine relationship. We crave community, but we need a much better idea of what it actually is. Well, it, it turns out when we turn to the scriptures, um, this desire for community that exists in people should not surprise us. It's a big theme of the Bible. It turns out that God created us for community. Now, um, because we uh, have a bit of a full service this morning, I'm going to really go fast through here uh, and, and skip a bit so that we can uh, dig into some of the stuff that's coming later. But here's the quick version. The, the story of community in the Bible doesn't begin with people, it begins with God. The fact is that the Christian God is the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. One God in three persons existing since forever past in perfect unity. And that Trinitarian God created people not to fill up something that was lacking in himself, not because he was lonely or incomplete, but out of the overflow of his perfection and his unity, his, dare I say it, I don't know if this is, uh, it's, maybe I'm creating a, a mild heresy here, but his community, do you see what I'm saying? Um, in the beginning, God created people in His image, which means that, amongst other things, they would resemble something of who God is, and they would do that in community. It is not good for man to be alone. Uh, the story of the Bible progresses, and we see uh, that when sin enters the world, these relationships that are supposed to exist in a perfect world are the things that are broken. The, the relationship between humans, Adam and Eve, and their creator that has existed in perfection up until this point is broken. Adam, uh, Adam, where are you, Adam? We hear God's cry in the garden. The relationship that goes from people to God is broken. And then immediately after that, we see that the relationship that exists between people and people is broken. Uh, in the curse, when God is pronouncing the curse in Genesis 3, um, he, he tells Adam and Eve the consequences of their sin, and he says, amongst other things, this as a part of Eve's curse. He says in Genesis 3:16, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The only perfect marriage to ever exist just became like the rest of us. 
Uh, all human relationships are affected by sin. As the story of, of Genesis progresses, we see that it gets worse and worse, and it's not long before a brother murders a brother. Community is broken. And so from this point onwards, in the, the whole story of the Bible, God is setting about his plan to restore all things. And ultimately, this is coming through Jesus. Um, but where it begins from that point forwards, we see it, is that God begins to build a people for himself. A people, he calls them a few things, a family, a nation. God begins to call and together a group of people who will turn away from the sin that has infected us all and will turn to worship God by faith. And throughout the whole history of the Bible, that community has existed. It's existed in various forms and in various places. Some of, the, some of the details are different. It has tough times. It has times of great success. There are periods of time where it's down to one family on all the earth. And there's periods of times where it's a great nation and the other nations of the world are coming to see what makes them so great. But the central truth remains uh, the same. This is God's people. This is God protecting and guiding and sustaining his community chosen from among all of the nations of the earth. And then Jesus comes into the pages of history and the, the lights go on and we are now able to understand what God is doing. We have seen, we have heard, the mystery has been revealed that God has a plan to restore all things through his son. And so God is going to deal with sin once and for all and restore all of creation to how it should be before uh, sin broke everything. And here's the critical truth for us to understand this morning. Through Jesus, God saves individual people, but he does not save us to remain individuals, to remain alone. Through faith in Jesus, we are rescued from the alienation of sin. And we are brought into the presence and the people of God. That's, that's a good truth this morning. If you're a Christian, can I get an amen? That's pretty exciting, right? We are saved from sin and its effects. And we are saved into, into a relationship with God and into a right relationship with each other that could not exist without His grace. Understand this. It has always been, and it will always be a people that God is building. A people, a family, a nation, a nation. And of course it is. It doesn't like, make so much sense when we think about it in the context of that story, because the whole point of what God is doing in this world is addressing the effects of the problem of sin, which includes the brokenness of relationship that exists between people. That's one of the effects of sin that God is deleting. Are you, are you with me so far? Because now we get to go even, even sharper. This is, that's the framework, and here's where we get to get really kind of practical and, and zoom in nice and close today, because we come into the story in the era after Christ's resurrection and before His return. After Christ's return to heaven and before his return to earth. The era where the community of God is known as the church. The gospel has been revealed. Jesus lived and died and lived again to redeem a people for God and to restore for them a new creation to call home. And as we have heard, that, that good news, it now becomes the, it needs to become the, the functional center of our lives. Uh, and also, it must become the functional center of our community. 
of our relationships with one another. We need to be a gospel-shaped people. That is the point of what God is trying to achieve in us. Uh, And of course, we can't say it all in one sermon, but as with last week, this is me summarizing a host of biblical content. This is my idea of what gospel-centered community looks like, and I've pulled some threads out of the scripture. If you think Matt missed something really important, please come and see me afterwards. I would love to hear about that and talk about that with you. Um, I'm not claiming that this is everything that it can be, but this is a good place to start. What is gospel-centered community? What does it look like? Today, we're going to look at what it means to be a gospel-centered community in that this community has a head, uh, a unity, a character, and a future. Gospel-centered community has a head, a unity, a character, and a future. Uh, To get started this morning, why don't you turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, where we're going to read about... Uh, Jesus, he's pretty great. We like him here. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. This is speaking about Jesus. Um, this, is, this is one of the passages in the whole Bible that best portrays to us how high Jesus is, how God he is in his godness. Uh, and this is what it says, He is the image of of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers authority or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. A little bit more than just a good moral teacher, isn't he? It seems. Slightly bigger claim than that. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then he goes to an interesting place. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, he might be preeminent. See, there's, there's two points being made here that I want to draw your attention to. Christ is the firstborn and Christ is the head. In, in, in rising from the dead, have, having defeated Satan, sin and death, Jesus becomes the first citizen of the new creation. This is, this is what he's getting at with this firstborn language. He is the beginning. He is the first one to experience what it is that God is promising to do for the rest of us. He is the firstborn among the dead. He won't be the last born from the dead, remember? All all who uh, trust in his name are going to share in this experience, but he he goes first. The, The new creation still needs to be made new, and the other citizens of that world still need to experience the newness spoken of here, but Jesus today is already living in that existence as the God who took on flesh and is now glorified. If you are new at church, what I said just kind of blew your mind, and I don't really have time to explain it better than that. Um, Come ask me after, I apologize. Uh, The essential idea is that in God's big plan for all of creation, all of this is coming to an end. 
only to be reborn and made perfect through the resurrection of Jesus. And when it comes to experiencing that newness, when it comes to experiencing that new creation, Jesus goes first. And God did that on purpose. He did it so that we could understand the next point. He did it in this way to show us that Jesus is preeminent in everything. He is the head. Everything that exists is for Jesus. It is His. It was created by Him and for Him. That stands, that stands true of this creation as much as the next. But isn't it doubly true of the new heaven and the new earth, which not only exists because it was created by Him and for Him, but can only come into existence because of the glorious thing He has done through His life, His cross, and His resurrection? And if it's doubly true that that new creation is the rightful property of Jesus, then isn't it triply true? How do you go higher than triply? I'm bad at maths. Isn't it so much more greatly true, even more importantly true, that we understand that if all those things belong to Him, in all the things that are rightfully Christ's, in all of the things that He is preeminent over, most importantly, He is the head of the church, the body, the people who he has redeemed from death to share in his new creation. Can you see how absolutely linked the church is with the purposes of what God is doing in this world? They should never be separated in our mind. And can we also see how essential it is then that that church body submits to Christ? I am not a medical doctor. Some of you are. I am reasonably certain with my limited medical knowledge that there are not very many parts of the Bible that do well without their head. Just in general. Remove the head, it does not go well for the body. I know it's true of fish. (laughs) Never done it to a person. As I said last week, please no one try that. Uh, I don't wish to go to jail. For the body to function properly, the head needs to be present. The body belongs to Christ. The church belongs to Christ. It is the church of Jesus that we are a part of. It exists only for Him and by Him. To be a part of this community, Christ must be your Lord. And for this community to be the community of Christ, Christ must be our Lord. He is the firstborn and you and we and I must follow him into being, uh, into being born again in order for this community to be what it is and into the life that he gives in order for this community to remain what it is. The defining trait of the body is that it submits to the head. That's what makes the church the church. That's what makes this community different from every other community that exists on earth. That's our one key idea. We are the people that submit to Jesus. That's the thing that makes us different. It's failure to submit to God that broke the world in the first place. And God's solution to that problem is to create a people by grace who have been restored to what it was supposed to be at the beginning, which involves us having a proper relationship with our God, the one that we should have had all along. It is absolutely critical that our community submits to Christ. Because when we cease to do that, we cease to be the church of Jesus. See, the point of church isn't my will be done. 
That's not what we're on about here. We, we love you here, but we don't worship you here. I am loved here, but I hope and I pray, and I'm not. I know I'm not. I am not worshipped here. Far too many people willing to share their opinions. It's great. I love you. I love you. It's His will be done, not our will be done. The church is not about people. The church is about Jesus. A gospel-centered community has Jesus Christ as its head. Also, just as a by the way, how ridiculous is the idea of trying to be a Christian without the church? At this point, we need to say. It's kind of like saying, he's the head, but I'm going to be the body all by myself. The, the idea isn't just unwise, it's perverse. Um, picture I don't know, a spleen hopping down the road all on its own, going, I got this body thing, I'm good, right? And now spend the rest of your lives trying to unthink that. Okay, <laughs> moving on before that becomes unrecoverable. Uh, a gospel-centered community has a head. And a gospel-centered community has a unity. Uh, to read this together from the word of the Lord, we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians 1, verses 10 to 17. The Apostle Paul writes in the word of the Lord, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. How absurd, right? Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you may say that you were baptized in my name. And then he stops and he thinks on reflection, actually, I did baptize a household of people. Uh, but beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else, right? For Christ did not send me to, to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Here's the background to what's going on here. Uh, this, this is a letter that is being written to a church that has fallen into infighting. It's, like, it's one of those ones where if you were visiting on Sunday, uh, let's say that you were the family come to visit for the dedication and you sat there and you watched the way people interacted, you'd be like, Ugh, this is awkward, right? The, the people of the church have kind of uh, dissolved into a petty factionalism. It's the kind of thing that can only happen when the headship of Christ is being ignored and neglected. And what, and what have they replaced the headship of Christ with? They have taken their eyes off Christ and they have placed their eyes on people, for the most part. What are they arguing about? A lot of things, but this is the important one for us. They're, over, they're fighting over which leaders they follow, which teachers they, they listen to. Uh, well, like Christians today never do this, right? This is totally an alien concept to us. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. There are authors in the present day who present ideas in their books that are biblically sound for the most part. And there are authors today who write books 
that are filled with harmful heresy. That exists. But we're not talking about the difference between someone who's teaching sound doctrine and, and someone who isn't. This church is fighting, and look at the examples of the people who they are fighting over. Look at the teachers who they are comparing. You might follow Paul, but I follow Peter. Cephas, that's his other name. You, you follow Cephas, I follow Apollos, one of Paul's other missionary mates. And then some few of them get the answer right. You might follow them, but we follow Christ. They're the ones who are still getting this thing right. Paul and Apollos agree. Peter and Paul agree. And Mary, just for fun. Christians follow Jesus. Why would you argue with another person over which one of those people you follow? They're both saying the same thing. This is getting out of hand to the extent that Paul goes as far as saying, I am glad I didn't baptize many of you. That's a big thing for a pastor to say. We like baptizing people. It's kind of a perk of the job, right? But in this instance, he's, he is glad that he didn't celebrate the new birth of one of his Christian brothers and sisters by baptizing them in one of the most precious moments that can exist in life. He's glad he was not a part of that in their life so that they can't use that act as a part of their silly arguments with each other. When we lose Christ as our head, when the gospel leaves its proper place in our life together, Christians, we lose our unity and we will fight with one another over the silliest of things. You hear the horror stories, churches that have split over where on the stage the communion table goes because that is what Christ died to redeem us from, a communion table on the left-hand side of the stage. Paul writes to this church to, to try and help them gain what they have lost. And what's his appeal to them? How is he going to help this church rediscover a unity that they once had and they now have lost? He tells them, put aside your theology because it's the thing that's causing disagreements. Is that what he says? No. He tells them, delete everything that is mildly contentious or potentially offensive from our community. No. He tells them, split your congregation down into small parts so that only people who are the same ever meet together. So we'll separate the young adults out from the, from the adults and the children out from the, and the people with children out from the... And we can have an African service and, a, and an English service. Get them all apart so that they, they can't fight. Is that what he says? No. He tells them something so much better. He calls them, in verse 10, to agree in the name of... Of Jesus. And in verse 17, he reminds them of the gospel and the uniqueness of the one who hung on that cross. Paul was not crucified for you, who was Christ. What is it that brings Christians into unity? The answer it is, it is a shared worship of Christ the Savior through the gospel of his grace. That's what gives us unity and nothing else it is a shared love of Jesus, the one who redeemed us and has mastered our souls. It is a shared desire to see that he, above all names, would be honored as a part of this people. It is our joy when Christ is the head. And if we have that in common, we can work through our differences. When Christ is our shared head, we become unified. We seek his voice through his word together. And if there is an argument between us, he wins the argument, not you or me. That's what it is to have him as our head. I mean, have you sat in that members meeting? 
Have you been a part of that members meeting? Praise the Lord, we have not had that meeting here in a very long time. But I remember them. I know some of you do too. It might seem counterintuitive, but the road to unity in the church is not to seek unity. It's bizarre. The road to unity in the church is not to seek unity, but rather to seek Christ. That's a critical difference. A church that is centered on unity will abandon Christ to gain unity. But a church that is centered on Christ and centered on the gospel has a unity. Because ultimately the people of the church want the same thing. It was A.W. Tozer who said it well. We've read this here before, but I can't get enough of this. This is what he said. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which which each one must individually bow. So, in the same way, 100 worshippers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and to turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. We become unified not through seeking unity, not through avoiding conflict, not through being uniformly the same. We have a glorious unified diversity that can exist nowhere else on this earth. And it comes through a shared worship of Christ. A gospel-centered community has a head. A gospel-centered community has a unity And a gospel-centered community has a character. Why don't we read together from the Gospel of John? Uh, This is Jesus speaking in verse 33 to 35. uh, On the night in which he was arrested and betrayed. uh, Speaking with his disciples, he is now knowing what is about to happen, preparing them for the next stage of their life, that they are now going to live as his disciples without his physical presence. This is what he says to them. Little children. I love that word, by the way. It's, uh, it's a very affectionate way to speak about people. Not, no, he's not belittling them. He's, he's, he's calling them his beloved children. It's, it's awesome. He says, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, now, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you. How weighty is this? Imagine, imagine being in that room as, as, as Christ is saying, I'm going away and you can't come where I'm going. And so in my absence, this is what you need to know, absence is the wrong word, but you know what I mean. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Love one another. That's, that's a difficult command to obey on its own, don't you think? On, on, on your own, sorry. Whenever I read this, here's the thing that comes to me. Here's the question that comes to my mind. 
what is it about the new commandment that is new? Because it kind of seems like nothing, right? That is an old commandment. It's like Jesus was asked, what is the most important commandment in the whole Bible? What What are the most important rules that God has given us? He says, number one is that you would love God above all others. Number two is that you would love your neighbor. That's the Old Testament. Not just the Old Testament, the second greatest commandment in the Bible. What's new about it in the days of Christ? The new part is that as Christians in this era of the church, we have a new definition and a new source of the love that we are called to give. The new part is the as I have loved you part. Our love for one another is now defined by how Christ has loved us. And the way in which we gain the ability to love one another is through having received that love from Christ. We love because he first loved us. Which is why when we love one another in this way, our love demonstrates to the world whose disciples we are. Because it's his definition of love and not just his definition of love, it's his actual love that we receive that we are now sharing with one another. The way in which the members of this community treat each other is to be a direct flow on from who Christ is and how he has treated us. And how has he loved us, his people? Oh, how has he loved us? This statement from Jesus comes sandwiched between two events. The very next thing that is going to happen that night, he is going to be betrayed and then in the morning crucified in order to save his enemies from their sins and make them his children. He has loved us. But what about before that? What's the the other event that sandwiches this command? Cast your eyes back up the page and see Jesus washing some feet. We, We don't have that equivalent in our culture, but it's a thing that needed to happen. Ancient world. No cars, lots of animals, and for some reason, sandals. Because anyone ever thought that was a good idea, right? Feet were covered at the end of the day in muddy poop. Harsh reality of life in the ancient world. And in a wealthy household where there would be a few servants, the the lowest servant, the new guy who was still kind of going through hazing, was the guy who had the job of washing people's feet when they got home. And in a place where there are no servants, what do you do? You wash your own feet, I suppose. Some of us have to wash our own feet, you see. No. In a place where there are no servants, Jesus, in trying to help his disciples understand what is about to happen to him, takes off his clothes, strips down to a towel, and the king of heaven takes the form of a servant as he by hand cleans the crap off his disciples. He makes himself their servant, even though he is their king, and then he tells them, as I have loved you, that is how you love one another. Let this blow your mind, because it goes just a little bit further. Him doing this is surprising enough, isn't it? Like, that's, that's enough to... Like, I'm feeling that the same way that you are. And then you stop and you think, later on that night, he's going to be betrayed by one of the people who were in the room. Which means immediately before Judas betrayed Jesus, Jesus washed Judas' feet. Knowing 
that it had already begun. Loving someone who has treated you well is one thing. But loving the one who has wronged you, or who is in the process of wronging you, that is a God thing. Only he in all the world is like that. A gospel-centered community has a character. And we can and we will spend a month unpacking what that character looks like. A community defined by the character and the lordship of Christ is going to have a host of things about it that are different from all the other communities of this earth. All the things that we see in Jesus and in his relationships with people, we will see in our relationships with one another and in the way in which we treat the world around us. We couldn't possibly say them all. But let me say a few because they're worth saying. In a gospel-centered community, we forgive one another. We love one another. We bear one another's burdens. We serve one another. We do outrageous things like confess our sins to one another. Because where else would we take them but to our brothers who understand and who will bear with us and to our sisters who will love us like Christ has. We have nothing to hide because we are the people of the grace of God. And so God's people live in the light like he is in the light. What about this? We discipline and we correct one another. That's a thing that a gospel-centered community does. Not in a self-superior way, not in a loveless way, like some people will take that as a license to do, but like Jesus, seeking each other's benefit and seeking to see people restored to the blessing of the grace of God. We are generous and we share our things with one another. How's this for a prayer? I was talking to uh, Darren, whose who's church plant we're supporting uh, over the course of the weekend. And he said, this is a prayer that they read out in their service together. The people said this together. And this was part of what they said. We are determined. We are determined to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. I hope we get the picture. The gospel-centered community has a character. It's the character of Christ. Here's your challenge this week. Go home and do those things in your house alone. It's not going to work. By this will all people know that we are his disciples, by our love for one another. Is the love for the body in us? Is the love of people made in the image of God in us? Is the love of Christ for the hurting and the broken and the lost in us? A gospel-centered, a gospel-centered community has a head. It has a unity, it has a character, and it has a future. We aren't going to spend long on this. I just want to read a passage to you to finish. Um, because this is where we're going. This is, this is what this community is going to look like heading into the future. This is, this is the glorious promise that stands over everything that has begun. Uh, we've got to go to Revelation, don't we? We started in Genesis, so we've got to get to the end in, in one day. Revelation 21. We look forward to a day when, when sin is dealt with. What 
does that world look like? And, and this is God's description of it. Then, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Today as a church, we get to respond to the grace of God together. Um, as, as has been the theme throughout this series and will continue to be, there's, there's a few ways we can do that. Um, the, the team are going to come up and they're going to share with us and leading us in the, the worship of God through song. Uh, we have a nice little cross set up over here where you can go if you feel like you need uh, a way to symbolize repentance, the grace of God, the redemption of God. What does that mean for you in, in relation to the community of God? Maybe you're sitting there thinking, I'm not a part of that community because I am not a part of Christ. Well, today can be the day that you join into what He's doing by His grace. Now, maybe you're thinking that I've been a part of that community but not in the right way. I'm, I'm one of the ones causing the, the quarreling or the, or, or the dissension or the disunity. I've, I've lacked Christ as my head. Today, by the grace of Christ, can be the end of that. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, I, I'm the one who, who hasn't loved, who hasn't forgiven, who's been unable to, to be generous. Well, the grace of Christ is here to address that in you and to restore. Uh, over here, we have uh, a place that symbolizes hope the hope of the future, the hope that we see in Revelation and, and, and also the hope that we see for what does it look like when this happens in our church today. Maybe you have a, an idea or a thought, a, a hope or a dream, a, an encouragement for your brothers and sisters, an idea, uh, uh, a willingness to lay down and get involved and, hey, head over there and, and get your prayers down on that wall. Get your thoughts down. We encourage your brothers and sisters. We read them. Have you been over there yet? If you haven't, Spend some time today looking at what is happening in the lives of your brothers and sisters because it is encouraging. <laughs> and perhaps most importantly today, over here, we have a place we've simply called Needs, where we pray for one another, where we support one another, where if we can help, we will. And if you want someone to pray with or, or to speak to or to share in your burdens, we'll come and we'll do what we can by the grace of God. Why don't we pray together? Lord, what a wonderful promise. Behold, I am making all things 
new. Come, Lord Jesus, come and restore. Restore us to our relationship with you that we might live as your people. Restore us in our relationships with one another. love one another as you have loved us and that we might show this world who you are in the way we live in the way we love in the way we speak in the way we act but I can't do any of that without you doing it without you is what made me not like that and so today I thank you for your grace Thank you that you came and you sought me and you called me and you washed me and you brought me to life and you adopted me and you adopted my brothers and sisters here today and that you brought us together and by your own flesh you tore down the wall of hostility that could possibly exist between us no wall of, of race or history or culture or background or wealth. No, no, no wall of having been wronged and holding on to that bitterness could possibly stand in light of your great love and your great grace. Jesus, whatever it is that is in me that is holding back from throwing myself into your community, yours because your ways are better than my ways because you are preeminent in all things and I would see you worshipped in my life and in this church be our head we pray 